is Swampside Chats, the podcast where, every week, Kami sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we complete our conversation with Amir from the Cold and Dark Stars blog. We talk electoral strategy, objective class interests, and small government socialism. This is part two of a two-part conversation. What's the solution then? It seems like it's a problem that just digs itself in deeper and deeper. Like, how do you get out of it? My blog post almost sounded like Jacobin because in Jacobin articles, they always start with blah, blah, blah. And then that's why we need socialism. <laughs> right. Beyond that, I actually wrote a little bit about this in Cold Dark Stars. One of the things I think is that socialist society will try to actively plan against what it considers socially unnecessary, wasteful complexity from the perspective of a socialist planned economy. So an immediate corollary of that is to get rid of the financial industry, for example, which is necessary for capitalists, but it's not necessary for economically planning a social society. So there needs to be constant economic planning that tries to minimize the administrative overhead to what's absolutely necessary. And this is also connected to the lowering of the working hour because like capitalism just kind of creates these industries and jobs that are this complex overhead that are necessary for the capital valorization circuit, but in an alternative society, they might not be, you know? This is my sketch of a solution, but obviously socialist society will have to deal with problems like that. But I think once, if we have the capacity to plan about it instead of just like because what happens in capitalism is that you have all these industries and branches and institutions that just kind of problem solved by themselves in the little niche. So in capitalism, people do things because they are profitable. But I was reading this great article by this political economist whose last name is Duncan. I don't remember his first name, but apparently he's a Quaker, not really Marxist, but likes, likes Marxian economics. But he was saying that certain productive sector or productive labor creates this global surplus value pool and some industries dip into the global surplus value, like transfer some of it to them, but they don't necessarily like create surplus value, you know? Right. So there's a lot of capitalists, I think it's like that, and that adds complexity that in the socialist society, I think we won't need, but it's hypothetical. Yeah, it looks great on paper, man. One of your blog posts kind of called for small government socialism. So I'm guessing you would say that socialism would be almost a simplification of the political and also the labor process in a way. And that all this complexity that's unnecessary because of capitalism would be gone. So you could be able to simplify administration so that everyone could take part in it. And one thing you can point to for like empirical confirmation of that, famously during the healthcare negotiations, like one of Obama's main concerns was that like universal healthcare would eliminate all the administrative jobs in the private healthcare industry. Exactly. Well, I guess I'm a little bit guessing on this, but I mind part of the reason why you have all this complexity in the healthcare industry is that all these intermediaries inside even healthcare itself that are not necessarily inside the insurance industry that have to deal with insurance companies. You know, that's like even insurance itself makes healthcare more complex as well. You know, the minimal state socialism. It's funny because I don't know, I kind of wrote it slightly like 
not trolling, but I was just thinking like, you know, every time people identify socialism with big government, you know, and I'm just saying. Yeah. My favorite crank is like Paul Cogshot, right? He takes a lot of like his computer science background into planning. And like, I never got too deep into computer stuff, but I did take a couple of like coding classes. And they always talked about like writing clean code and like having it be like as simple and as few things as possible instead of having sloppy stuff that just goes on and on and on and on to do something very simple. You know what I mean? And so it seems like you would be organizing society along similar lines and that you would want that programming of the society to be done in such a way that it took as few labor inputs as necessary and as little information flow as necessary in order to accomplish the tasks of administering a society. Yeah. It's kind of funny because it's a reversal of the sort of logic that mainstream economists use, where they imagine the private sector as incredibly efficient and superior in almost every way to the public sector, and the public sector only needing to exist to be inefficient for things that are soft and cuddly. Like, it's allowed to be inefficient for water and that sort of thing to a limited extent. It sort of pushes back against that. I do think we should be aware of the difference here between socialization and nationalization and things of that nature, but I, I don't want to derail. To add on the clean coal thing, um, I actually, just to go back a little bit, some guy in left book had this excellent software engineering concept, technical depth. That shit is amazing. Like technical depth means like, I imagine software engineering, you have a code and it's kind of done iteratively, but there's a lot of you know, the previous guy might have done some shitty code or because you just kind of want to problem solve immediate things, you know? So you want to just be profitable at that moment. So you just problem solve immediately, but maybe in an efficient, working manner. And then someone else inherits that work. And now there's a technical debt involved because there might be some bugs or some inefficiencies that this guy, instead of just changing fundamentally, just adds another layer of complexity to solve it. It's referred as technical debt, you know? And I think it's a great concept that, applies to capitalism. And I think the other part where beyond this whole debate of socialization versus nationalization, I think a lot of, especially the ideologues of capitalists, just find intuitive that capitalist firms, they only exist if they're profitable. So if it's not profitable, people will employ in that, you know, won't be doing that work. And I agree, but profitable doesn't mean that in the aggregate, it actually economic growth. It could also mean there's a funneling of wealth into a certain firm or sector without necessarily creating something. So yeah, like finance, for example, this Duncan guy is saying that, you know, finance just make themselves richer by directing cash flows to them. That's all. And you can say that's part of the decline of capitalism because it creates this whole swath of people who are not producing anything in society or adding anything to society, but are rich off of all this excess financial capital that's pumped into the system. Yeah, exactly. That kind of leads like a cultural decadence, I guess. <laughs> kind of go back to the earlier stuff about Lakatosh and the research program. Like there are exceptions to the degeneration of the universal research program. There are these little Herculean voluntarist intellectual efforts to make something make sense. It can either be done in a terrible ad hoc way or in an ingenious way. And this is the role of cranks in kind of scientific progress. People that are like cutting against the grain adopting insane theories that have unusable conclusions, but come up with a bunch of interesting things in the process. If you're like a Marxist right now, right? You're inheriting all this, I don't know, it's kind of like analogous to tech debt. Like these problems haven't actually been worked out. A lot of it was just ad hoc kind of pasting over inconvenient stuff. Like there's a whole line of Marxism that doesn't think humans have a nature. You know what I mean? Like this is kind of all kinds of yeah. shit that's sort of insane that just gets a, a hearing.
being somewhere on the spectrum is helpful for this field. It all it all connects. Yeah. Like it's all, <laughs> oh. There's another post that you had against rigor. And I've been reading Diane Elson and her essay on Marx's value theory of labor, which kind of makes an argument that you can't like calculate like labor hours because it's too mathematically problematic, something along these lines. And recently, I also read a debate between Paul Maddock Jr. and Michael Roberts, where Paul Maddock is sort of insisting that we can't actually get the math for like the falling rate of profit as Marx described it, or Michael Roberts had a more optimistic kind of take. We have the weight of a lot of theories that are either kind of metaphysics or making claims that a lot of the followers don't want to like actually follow through on what they would mean if Marxist is in our vocabulary for ourselves. I think this concept of technical debt applies like we're, we're inheriting like a mess. So there's this obsession with, and it's related to technical debt too, because if you inherit the formalism and there's an obsession with making the formalism completely coherent, this everything almost. So I've been a Marxist or a socialist since I was like 14, you know, and I'm like close to 30 right now. So it's been a while. And, you know, when I was a kid or even in my early 20s, you know, I would read Michael Roberts and all these references to Chris's theory. And then like, I respect a lot of Michael Roberts, but my point is that, you know, because it just sounded so deep and so complicated, therefore it was true. Then I grew up and after like almost a PhD in physics, I guess my cognitive capacity and everything comprehension, a lot of these things are just kind of needlessly complex because of tech debt, but they end up being kind of wrong. So for example, I think the more orthodox Chris's theory, I think it's the wrong approach, like the one based on the tendency for the rate of profit to fall as connected to rising organic composition of capital, which is a fancy way of saying, oh, like most of investments go into machines instead of human labor, therefore, in, in a future where everything is automated and sold robots, like there won't be profit because there won't be human labor to exploit, you know? Cut his mic. Cut his mic. Uh, <laughs> it's been a good episode. Yeah. No, no, no. Amir has like a big philosophical edifice that informs this like hostility to this Aristotelian way of doing science where you're putting forward some kind of univariate law that determines a lot of stuff. But I think, as you know, I tend to think that this is perfectly commensurate with like a multi-causal analysis. It's kind of my understanding of dialectics. The idea that there's like a, a general breakdown of capitalism caused by the falling rate of profit is wrong. But I think if you look at part three of volume three of Capital, just those three chapters on the tendency to the rates of profit to fall, I think they actually do kind of sketch out a basic tendency in capitalism that's a result of certain emergent properties, basically. Yeah, I mean, my thing is I can't actually defend it. And there's that piece by, um, I think it's Maito Esteban or is it Esteban Maito? I forget which is the first and which is the last name. But he basically claims that you can trace the like rising organic composition of capital through from like the 19th century. I've never like verified that data. But I will say this, I think if you scrap like the rising organic composition of capital, you basically have to scrap value theory as well. Or at least Marx's particular version of it, which I guess is fine, but... I don't know if I agree with that. I don't think what Michael Roberts is proposing is needlessly overly complex. Like, it's actually relatively simple. Like, I remember reading The Long Depression, and it was probably the clearest explanation of, like, crisis theory that I've ever read in my life. It was plainly laid out in, like, clear language. There wasn't anything oh. obscurest about it. 
generally like I have no idea when it comes to statistics, but I can't seem to find anything where he seems to be like playing with the numbers in order to like obscure the data enough to fit his narrative. There is sort of a point in which like, yeah, the falling rate of profit is kind of hard to do because there isn't like global statistics all around global statistics that we can really look to. We have national statistics and that sort of thing, but we don't have global statistics. And even then, Paul Maddock Jr. argues that it would be mathematically impossible to do so. That, like, makes it impossible for it to be, like, a really scientific theory. And I don't think it's even incompatible with what Amir is proposing in terms of, like, complexity. It could be just one of many causes leading into crisis. Um, doesn't need to be the main cause. It simply is like a major cause. I mean, the problem with it isn't, to me at least, that the theory is too complex. It's more that it's hard to falsify. I wasn't much thinking about Michael Roberts, but more like thinking, go to Michael Roberts' comment sections. It's all these guys just like maneuvering S, C, and B. You know, just kind of, oh, surplus value increases. Then, I don't know, it's almost incomprehensible because it's just this maneuvering of these three variables. So what I was going to add is that it's not about complexity. It's actually the opposite. It's not the theory itself is like complex. It's that it's funny because I use the phrase I wrote from Nassim Taleb. So he uses this idea of Aristotelian arguments. He says that certain type of thinker, you know, like sees every mm -hmm. logical chopping of a very few variables and you kind of arrange the variables in a certain way. And the proposition of variables gives you the truth. Like if you go... Aristoteles and you see his arguments, it kind of works on like that. You know, you're just like, oh, what do trees share between each other? Just from like thinking and logical chopping, you generate this theory, you know? Yeah, you what? get a cognitive grasp of the essence of it. Yeah. yeah. But for example, right nowadays to me, like Marxist categories, like surplus value, constant capital, variable capital only really makes sense in the global aggregate. So actually people just looking at one firm or even one nation like this, Categories don't kind of make sense. You have to look at the global economics and then like in the aggregate level. My point is that instead of sometimes focusing to these specific variables, you kind of have to have this holistic view of the system, you know? And what are its stressors, its fragilities, begin from the top, like from the global view, and then just kind of reduce it. These guys just kind of start from this microphysics and these like specific micro variables, and then from there, like, construct the theory but i think it's better to start from a bird's eye view because capital is an insanely complex system so you can't really know all the like roots of it you know all the fundamental microphysics you kind of have to start from above and then from there start thinking about it yeah it's the macro phenomena that are less predisposed to different interpretations you see something like a financial crisis or like a broader economic crisis that is just an empirical macroeconomic experience that you can maybe try to extrapolate theories of the microeconomics from it but like the main thing that marxist theory has as a claim to science here is an attempt to explain something that's fairly regular in capitalism that's the heart of that I think what's interesting overall about like the theory that you're proposing, prototype for a theory, whatever, is that it seems to be like a left-wing reading of Talab. His sort of like understanding of crisis is based around fragility, 
he proposes almost like the exact opposite of what you propose yeah, exactly. in terms of responding to this. He proposes something like what Neo-Reaction would call patchwork system, which is essentially smaller corporate states. In response to this, it would be to go smaller yeah. rather than like larger. His utopia yeah. is basically like mercantile, small mercantile city states. Yeah, mercantile. Yeah. Yeah. But like, okay, so that's very interesting thread. I agree. Like, some of, especially this idea of fragility, I got from him. And I thought about that how like his idea of anti fragile is like city states. But to me, like, Mercantile city states are so anti fragile. Why aren't they not there anymore? Like, well, like, I mean, he would probably respond to you by saying, "Okay, if the Soviet Union is not prone to that. If communism is not prone to that, why is the Soviet Union not here? Why is China moving?" Well, I don't even know if he believes that China is capitalist. Based on his like crank views, I don't know. He's a weird diet fanboy and into those haplo groups, if you know what I mean. It's an interesting contradiction. This is the way I see it, you know, beyond all the empirical confirmation of other city states or USSR was fragile or anti fragile. Ultimately, it comes down to this. So, if you want something that's anti fragile and it's not fragile to stressors, you have to plan around it. Like, there's really no, like, for example, if you want to like deal with earthquakes, you have to plan around it. If you want to deal with like in the medieval era, you know, you had all these societies wiped out by the bubonic plague. You know, like the approach is to plan about it. To find and fragilities and to like deal with them, like requires this social slash economic planning. You know, like you see what I'm trying to say? Are we talking about that dude who has like the black swan thing or whatever? Yeah, he's the black swans guy. Okay, so here's the thing. Like, oftentimes when like disasters like happen that shock the system, the market is the first thing to go out the window. Like, I remember, like, the last year when, like, that hurricane almost hit Florida. Like, they were immediately, like, basically rationing, like, rules against price gouging. The whole thing is shut down. Like, the government was basically in charge of everything. So it's, like, this idea that, like, the market is somehow immune to those things is just completely contradicted by just the way that these situations get managed when there is a genuine disaster. So, so I mean, I think you could say that a contradiction with the anarchy of the market and the general contradictions of the market itself with the actual needs of humanity and maybe that's the um contradiction of crisis is basically that capitalism because it's prone to overproduction financial panics and the misuse of resources outside of our own control versus a need to plan for humanity's own social reproduction is the contradiction essentially so this is the thing that makes me pro-planning. So, okay, if you want to deal with issues, let's say housing problem and climate change, etc., you deal directly with it. And the way to deal directly with it is planning. I don't see how it's logically coherent, this idea that you kind of like create this random system that, and you hope that on the side it solves with it, you know? It's like, why not just solve the problems? And it's like, I think it's the most intuitive, logical thing that if you put it in that way, most people will agree with it. It only when it's about capitalist people, they say all this counterintuitive shit and it's just cynical, you know, it's more like pure ideology because you're like, beyond like the problematic idea of common sense, more like your cognitive intuition tells you that problem. So you have to deal with the problem directly. And only when we start talking about capitalism is some shit about, oh, like, let's just wait for the randomness of the market to somehow uh, save us from global warming. Let's just like create this fake like 
price schemes for carbon emissions and then hopefully somehow the market will arrange it so that we are safe instead of just like deal with it directly you know and that to me is what's important about socialism you deal directly with things to achieve social need and ultimately for the working class seizing the state is the only way they can fight because this random capitalism and this like stochastic aspect like this random aspect is the mechanism of capitalism and if you actually think of it in terms of firms you know just like maybe socialist state could be like the working class firm that fights against all these other organizations capitalist organizations you know capitalists have their own institutions and firms but workers don't you know the proletariat almost really doesn't even exist as a class because it doesn't have these institutions that create the common sense of belonging to the class in the first place. So in a way, the bourgeoisie exists as a class and it just exploits like a completely atomized pool of wage labor. And there's very little class consciousness, basically. This geographically differs, but there is a general trend toward nationalism globally, I would say. And it's partly because like, Okay, people always say that, oh, the working class is more nationalistic or more reactionary, and then the left has nothing to offer anymore. It's literally the working class and poor people are politically inert, and the only politically active kind are the formal petty bourgeois and the petty bourgeoisified like, middle class, like small property-owning middle class. And that's one of the problems also with more vulgar considerations of class, where they just see it as simply like, oh, if you receive a salary, you're a worker. Like, I don't know. I remember having a discussion with someone telling me, like, lawyers are workers. Our <laughs> ongoing debate down here was our doctor's proles. <sighs> okay. According to Marx, a proletarian is someone who owns nothing except their labor. And all these small property holdings, that's owning something more than their labor. Like, and I think people miss that, you know? And it's not like I'm moralistic and criticizing guys at home who make it be great for them but i'm criticizing the idea that that doesn't basically make people more reactionary simply because it's their class interest to like pay less taxes it's a denial of the reality of the different class interests you know a working class party needs to like fight for those who are not politically activated and activate them even if it's contradictory to the electorate that exists today you know at the end of the day even a minimum program that talks about like in the U.S., obviously, public health care, but there's other things like educational reform, where, for example, in the U.S., funding is not based on this rationalized zip code scenario for a public school, mm. but based on how many heads are in a school, you know, or a job retraining program for very low income or unemployed people to, like, direct them to the market or, like, policies that deal against racism in a structural way. All these things are not going to benefit some dude in some segregated zip code that has like $500,000 house, you know, like it doesn't work that way. It actually benefits people who don't vote, you know, and who are not represented in the mainstream usually, who are a large percentage, you know, at least like in the U.S., basically 50% of people don't vote. And the other 50% is divided between probably like a small percentage of people who are authentically working class, some this middle class, petty bourgeois, people and capitalists, you know, like. Yeah, that statistic doesn't even include like people who are in prison. When you include that people who are in prison, there are people in the United States who can't vote because of like immigration laws and that sort of thing. It becomes like more around 70 percent. Well, that's actually one thing that's kind of interesting about this moment politically is how 
the Democratic Party is kind of being forced to admit that they really are only interested in the votes of that middle strata of society. And that's the only people thing that anyone cares to cater to politically. I think there is something you could say, you know, historically progressive about the fact that people are openly noticing this. Oh, yeah. But the DNC, okay, so mainstream electoralism by its own design is risk averse. So these guys are even beyond like the class character of the DNC, you know, these guys, I'm even talking about social democratic parties that were historically partially working class, at least, or labor parties. Electorally, they are risk averse because they want to win elections. And the most risk averse thing is to aim your platform for the likely voters who tend to be more reactionary than the people that don't vote. It's a coin toss to like activate, aim your platform at people that don't vote, you know, because they might not just come out. That's why a socialist party should have a different relationship with electoralism. I'm not an abstentionist about it, but it shouldn't be the same relationship, like trying to win at all costs, you know? Precisely because the Democratic Party is dealing with its base. To a certain degree, all political actors are trying to activate people, but really they are quote, realists about it, quote, and know that ceteris paribus, given the status quo, a bunch of people aren't going to just come out. So they're going to appeal to the people that are already there. Exactly. And if socialists keep doing that, I actually think that they do it for the most part because it's an easier strategy and, and it's one of them that's available to them. It's well, not available to yeah, us. Right. It's not available to socialists to appeal to the already existing political base because of the class yeah. background that we're talking about. And people that are politically interested tend to be of that stratum. And that's why I think the concept of the proletariat is important, you know, even if they're not politically there. It's important to keep the theory of class interests that are objective as a political guidepost. That's still the heart of the thing. Because the proletarians do exist. A socialist party would appreciate the value of losing elections, right? There was recently a whole thing where some people in Congress were putting forth measures to abolish ICE. So the Republicans in this ploy basically put that up for a vote, essentially, to force the Democrats to actually vote on something that would, for right now, be very unpopular in, in many sectors. Mm -hmm. Of course, the people completely chickened out and voted against their own proposal. But the problem is, like, well, this will cost us votes. But it's like if you don't start to actually advocate for something and stand behind, like, very basic principles, nobody will ever change their mind or think, you know. If there aren't people, like, voting against ICE now, then why would they – come to think that it's bad if nobody's voting against it, right? A socialist party would understand, like, the value of taking principled stances even in the faces of, you know, electoral defeat. Yeah, basically socialists should be pushing against both parties, trying to undermine them as, like, much as possible in terms of, like, electoral politics. Like, the main goal should be advocating our politics in terms in which they won't be taken by the Democratic Party or whatever. And I don't think the Democratic Party is willing to move left. The October Revolution basically happened after a huge election campaign, not just in the existing Soviets, but also in the municipal Dumas of, you know, the bourgeois municipalities, the Bolsheviks were running candidates all throughout them. So if you want to win... If you want to actually overthrow the state, electoralism is a necessary like tactic to use. You want to use every tactic possible, and it's an indispensable tactic, especially for building up the actual legitimacy that's necessary to command state power. Right. 
you have to show the people that you're standing against the establishment that you're actually on the outside. Like I had this Medium article where I basically advocate for a position of socialists running within the Democratic Party, but to undermine the party itself. And the position is kind of like weird because why would you run within the Democratic Party if you want to undermine it? I basically would want socialists to do what Trump was acting as, like a complete king ball in terms of engaging in primaries, essentially pushing for these radical positions that the party cannot take in any means, but will ultimately undermine the party's stability and push them towards collapse. And I, and I feel comfortable telling a party what to do. Now, granted, I have no experience in politics. I don't really know how the government works, and I probably couldn't even name all the rights in the Bill of Rights, but I do have a podcast, so... I just want to add a thing about the DNC, which is related with the idea of a working-class party. So the other problem about the DNC and why it cannot be a working-class party in many ways is that it's not a real party. It's actually an electoral machine. How it works is that in order to get money to run candidates, because most of the time, either you have to glad hand rich people and bankers, or your patron has to explode or something. Like Bernie Sanders had a lot of small donations, you know? So that makes it really hard for socialists to run. So the DNC, if they could, I think they will move slightly left because I think like politicians at the end of the day, they want to like win because it's related to their livelihood too. Like they have their own interests. But what's so difficult with the DNC is that in the US, I don't know exactly the laws about financing candidates, but you know, like campaigns can have ridiculous amounts of money, you know, and in order to get more publicity than the other guy from the GOP or something, you have to glad have some guy from Wall Street. And if you're going to like, oh man, like just go like really left, like those guys that will give you money will not be there anymore. So that's one of the fundamental contradictions in DNC. Meanwhile, a working class party will have a real base that pays dues, you know, and with a leadership that's accountable to its base. The DNC doesn't have a base. The U.S. is so fucked up. Like, it doesn't really have real parties. You see, the thing is, you don't need that much money. When you look at the Trump campaign, he ran very few ads. The way he kept on going throughout the campaign and advertising themselves was basically like having the media fuel it. It wasn't him funding like ads or anything like that. It was basically the spectacle around him and his positions ended up fueling like this media hate storm against him, like continually. And this made this image of this Trump figure that is outside the establishment, that is outside of the Democratic Party and even the Republican Party, even though he's like running within the Republican Party and he's like a millionaire. But the way the media treats him allows to create this anti-establishment image. And basically, that's what one would hope for in like having like socialists run in these primaries, is that they're not really running on their own advertisement. They are their own advertisement. They become it through like the media gawking at them and saying, oh, look at these socialists, look at these radicals coming into the Democratic Party. Uh, just writing a million think pieces on how this is an example of horseshoe theory. This will attract people. Of course, funding will still be somewhat of an issue. You still need to get funds for the initial campaign. But I think like Trump and like Bernie Sanders basically laid down the means of like having a grassroots campaign. Are there any final thoughts or any final questions or anything that people... 
the, the last thing I want to lob is uh, two posts stuck out to me. One piece in defense of enlightened rationalism over Anglo empiricist theorist barbarism. The other is the two about the happy, squishy human and the Vulcan and how uh, a bunch of scientific people take on this idea that they don't have any like passions. They don't have anything that drives their reason. David Hume is actually pretty cool for this. He is an arch empiricist, but recognizes how important those things are and uh, how like not Vulcan people are. I like the way that those two pieces interact, even just in a general philosophical resonance beyond like uh, philosophy of science. Well, thanks. Just gonna make a couple of quick comments about that. One of the things I wrote about the Vulcan rationalism is that just like very masculine perspective, this idea of, oh, I'm this rational cyborg you know, that I'm logically chopping my way through this argument and therefore it's more correct. But my point is also that it's actually like ideological projection because their arguments are still influenced by ideology, but they have this mode of communication that gives the appearance that they don't, you know. So at the end of the day, you know, you see like behind every guy going off about there aren't that many women in science because IQ distributions imply that dudes are more in the extremes than women, you know, and you need like high IQs for science, not like normal IQs, you know, like behind that, obviously there's like a sentiment, you know, like, I don't know, like, even if it doesn't like come out, you know, you can read between the lines. And that's actually why I fucking hate like Jordan Pearson and stuff like that, because it's pretty obvious, like what's going behind the doors, but he will not spell it. And he has this, this like plausible deniability, which is a crock of shit, you know, it's just cowardly. All right. Well, thanks yeah. for coming on the show. I don't say this often, but I think you're doing the Lord's work over there at Cold Dark Stars. I think everyone who's listening to this should go and read it if they're not reading it already. Read it, and uh, Amir has a Patreon with Cold Dark Stars. We recently had a pretty awesome Patreon run, and if you like high-quality crank Marxism from the internet, this is some of the cream of the crop, so make it sustainable. <laughs> well, I'll see you guys. It was a pleasure. Thanks for coming up. Yeah. Chilling in the swamp. Well, that about does it for this week. Be sure to check out both Swampside Chats and Cold and Dark Stars on Facebook, on Patreon, and on Twitter. Oh yeah, we have a Twitter. It's at Swampside Chats. If you, if you didn't guess it last time, that's what, that's, that's what it is. Next week, we have our first edition of Not One Step Back. The series where fans pay like 30 bucks to force us to read something. In our first edition, an anonymous donor made us read something that we had previously turned down, which is exactly what I was hoping people would do with this. And so we're reading chapter two of Heinrich Grossman's 1929 book, The Law of the Accumulation and Breakdown of the Capitalist System, entitled The Law of Capitalist Breakdown. This should be exciting. I'm excited. You should be excited. If you're not excited, this dovetails nicely with Amir's theory of decline. We'll see how it compares. Until then, keep your boots clean.